0: My name is Kwame Eason. Um I've been with Spark. Well, actually, the more interesting thing is I've been with Pastor Danielle in ministry 20 years. So, um, God is good. Excellent. And that is, yes, that is humbling for all involved. <laughs> um, actually, another funny thing is I was actually supposed to talk on a very similar series in 2020, and the week that I was supposed to talk is when we had the realization this is not a good idea. (laughs) Um, And I think we shut it down. Um, So um, hey, I'm thankful. And it turns out I I have six minutes, and um, and now I have five. Thank you, Craig. (laughs) Beep, beep. (laughs) The little hook pulls me out. All right, um, Today's testimony is rooted in the verse a uh, couple of verses out of Kings, Second uh, Kings 16:17. Uh, "Don't be afraid," the prophet answered, "Those who are with us are more than those who are with them." And Elijah prayed, "O Lord, open his eyes so he may see." Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elijah. I like to uh, read the entire context of that at the end um, because I think that's so incredibly powerful and um, there's a significant number of parallels uh, for me in my life. So when asked why Jesus, most of my growing years people would say, if it wasn't for Jesus, I'd be dead or in prison. And I thought it was dramatic and really a lot for effect. However, however, now as I look back on my life through the long lens of time, and really a much more healthy understanding of all the risks, snares, and booby traps of life, I truly and wholly recognize God's hand in my life. And if it were not for that divine intervention, I literally would be dead or in prison. See, I grew up poor, black, and in the South, um, in the inner city projects of Atlanta, Georgia. I was born into a black and white reality. And what I mean by that is being black meant poor, marginalized, broken, disheartened, and are discarded. This was true for the adults and the kids in my life. Uh, The kids in my reality, um, particularly when I was growing up, again, this is focusing on the first 15 years of my life. Almost none of us knew knew let alone had a relationship with our fathers. As a result, we'd often spend a lot of our time and energy seeking to fill this relationship void, sometimes unconsciously. Okay, so there weren't many options for void filling, The sports, gangs, church, school, along with the standard, more adult-oriented escapes of drugs, sex, violence, etc. My world was already filled with drugs, sex, and violence, with the direct impacts observable in my immediate and very extended family, as well as those up and down the street. I generally feared these things because... uh, I feared getting engaged in these things because I knew where they would lead, to a path of destruction again evidenced and reinforced by the environment surrounding me. Had initially... I had initially and I think rather unintentionally looked to the church as a way out. Unfortunately, I found it was filled with hypocrisy, enabling of sinful behaviors at best, and sometimes even profiting from or extending the scope of abuse at worst. So it's against this backdrop that we now ask a good 35, 40 years later, why Jesus? I say, I didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose me. I am often, and I often ask, why me, Jesus? When I look at the darkness and chaos of my childhood, the one constant was an awareness that there was more to life than what I saw around me. You know, that peace that surpasses understanding, that voice calling from the wilderness, well, that was Jesus in my life. Now I spent my high school and undergrad years gaining a more nuanced grade scale of struggle. Again this full spectrum of, of race and outcast and struggle, not just black and white, uh, not just seeing the world as black and white. Also I worked really hard to get out of the inner city and build a physically, emotionally, and financially secure space away from all those trials and tribulations. In 1994, I relocated to the Bay Area, and sat at the center of a new technological and economic universe, birthed by the World Wide Web. I met and interacted with people who would go on to change the world. Some examples are founders of Google and Yahoo. Uh, But I also had come in contact, I had come to know and befriend several ministry volunteers working in East Palo Alto. Uh, which was coming off the title of Murder Capital of the Nation, Murder Capital Capital Per Capita of the Nation in 1992. Now these volunteers included Sue Ann, my, uh, who would later on become my wife. Um, and I lost my place, hold on here. Uh, these volunteers included Sue Ann, who would later become my wife. Uh, they were passionate about a community that I had more in common with than they. And I looked on in awe and I felt called to return to the inner city. Uh, to be a role model I so desperately needed when I was growing up, but I had a natural hesitation because of the uncomfortableness of returning to where I had spent 10 years singularly focused on getting out of. Fortunately, I did not walk alone, and a close brother shared these God-inspired words to me. Kwame, you have a simple choice. You can either live in the inner city in God's will or you can live in the suburbs outside of it. <clears throat> I relocated to East Palo Alto in 1996 and I've never looked back. Okay, to pull all these pieces together, when you read my story, and this is shared up until 2000, approximately 1998, 2000, the only way to make sense of this is to insert Jesus at every pause and period, at every question mark and doubt at every fear and hesitation because that's where I found him time and time again. Okay, now I'm going to read the full context of, uh, sorry, <clears throat> I'm going to read the full context of 2 Kings verses uh, 9 through 23, and uh, this is directly from the Bible of my God. This is so uh, powerful for me in my walk. The man of God, being Elisha here, sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place, because the Armenians are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and time again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers, but Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of every word, of the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dotham. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city, and the servant of the man, When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army of horses and chariots had surrounded the city. "'Oh, my Lord, what shall we do?' the servant asked. "'Don't be afraid,' the prophet answered. "'Those who are with us are more than those who are with them.' And Elijah prayed, "'Lord, open his eyes that he may see.' Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes." And he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. As the enemy came down toward him, Elijah prayed to the Lord, Strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness. And Elijah had asked, As Elijah had asked, Elijah told them, This is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elijah said, Open the eyes of these men so they can see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they looked. And there they were inside Samaria. And the king of Israel saw them. He asked Elijah, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill men you have captured with your own sword and bow? Set food and water before them so that they may enter, that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the, bands, so the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. This is an example of how God finds ways that are truly nonconventional in solving our everyday problems. And I've lived this for the last 50 years. Thank you, friends.
1: Thank you, Kwame. Uh, if, if you're new here today and you're trying to learn more about Spark, uh, I would go talk to Kwame. Uh, I think he represents Spark in such an amazing way. As he's a man of faith. He's a man of uh, passion. He's a man of conviction, and uh, I think though he lives the values of what we're trying to do here at Spark. So, uh, uh, my name is Tom Arrington. I'm one of the pastors here at Spark. Um, We're a few weeks into a series called Fruit of the Spirit, and you should know that fruit is sort of a biblical symbol or metaphor given to name characteristics that are part of our life when we abide in the person of Jesus. And this week, we focus our attention on a real important word, and that word is peace, and really on the question, in a world that is full of so much trouble and division and fear and heaviness what does it mean to be a person of peace a person of a person who knows peace in their spirit a person who embodies peace as they interact with family and friends and on social media and in the world around them and to help us wrestle with this question on peace we're going to look at a passage in the bible it's in mark it's chapter 4 And I'm going to read some of these verses, and let's see what we can learn from this passage today about peace. The passage says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him up and said to him, "'Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing?' And waking up, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, "'Be silent, be still.' Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm." He said to them, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? A theologian by the name of Barbara Brown Taylor, she recently made a keen and I think a relevant observation around this very topic. She said this, there may be no experience in the world that we want more and have less than the experience of peace. The word is everywhere describing something that is desired but missing between nations, between people, between the good earth and its inhabitants. Chiefly, we tend to notice the absence of tranquility in our own hearts and minds. However much we hanker for peace, we have for the most part learned to live without it. I don't know about you, but those words just deeply resonated with me. The New Testament has a Greek word for peace and it is arene. And it actually comes from the verb arrow, which means a binding or joining of that which has been separated. This is really important. A binding or joining of that which has been separated. It is a word that is like the Hebrew word shalom, which implies connection, wholeness, rightness, things as they ought to be not just for myself, but for my family, for my neighborhood, and for my city, and beyond that even, to be right with God. It's about connection. See, we find ourselves living in a moment where there's this deep scarcity of that kind of irene, and we feel this socially, politically, and personally. But what struck me the most about Barbara Brown Taylor's comment was that we often become so accustomed to living disconnected that we don't even stop to consider maybe an alternative exists. Maybe there's another way. And part of what this text from Mark that we read invites us to do is to pause and consider the good news of that reality That this word peace that we so long for is not just a myth, but it's an actual possibility for whoever you are, for whatever circumstances you find yourselves in, and in this very moment. And so today, as we observe the fruit of peace in Jesus' life, we, we are going to receive together what he has to teach us about the source of peace, the pathway of peace, and the outcome of peace the source of peace, the pathway to peace, and the outcome of peace. So we begin with this idea of the source of peace. In our text that we just read, Mark sets the scene for us. Picture this. Jesus is with his disciples on a boat. We're told he's headed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And we're told there's this great wind and storm Kind of like what we just experienced a few weeks ago. There's a great wind and storm that sets in and the water becomes a threat to the boat itself. And the waves are beating on the side of the boat. The NRSV, the updated version, it tells us that the boat is swamped. In other words, the boat has taken on more than it can hold. Now holding this picture in your mind, I want to zoom in for a moment and say a bit about the imagery of the sea and what that represents throughout ancient scripture. In the ancient world, the sea was understood to be a place of chaos and danger. Little was known on a scientific level about what was happening in the sea. It was unpredictable. It was really thought to be the gateway to the dark underworld. And given this fact the disciples were probably a bit confused to begin with when Jesus gets in the boat and announces we're crossing to the other side of the sea. See because of this chaotic picture of water fishermen which many of the disciples were often stayed near the shore where things were safe. They were predictable. They had a sense that they were still sort of in control of things. Now, in our modern context, we know a bit more about what's happening in deep bodies of water. And yet, it's not all that difficult to imagine the fear of the disciples that they are experiencing in this moment. Tammy and I, we took took our family to a lake in Idaho last summer. It's a big and beautiful lake, and it was so fun, swimming and tubing, and we even got some pickleball in. That's all for you. And our grandson, Tucker, he loved it there. He loved running on the beach. He loved running on the boat deck and racing in the boat. But he had no interest getting into that lake, no interest. And he let us know it. I mean, he, it was really clear as he would wrap his arms and legs around my body and squeeze as hard as a one-year-old could whenever we got close to that lake. He wasn't going into that water. Now, he loves to go into the pool and to take a bath But there was something about this lake. Maybe it was the eerie darkness of the water. Maybe it was the nasty looking fish we saw by the dock. Maybe he feared that the water was going to be cold. I don't know. All I know was that he wasn't going in that water. But the point is this, and it makes sense to me. It's a very human thing to feel fear and worry about that which we can't predict or control, like the future how our health story is going to unfold, what people we love will do, and we can't control it. And for the disciples, this fear has proven to be valid because the storm is now overtaking their boat, and water is coming in, and it is simply too much water. In the middle of the scene lies Jesus, the leader, the teacher, the one who could presumably do something, and he's asleep. Now, before we look at the invitation Jesus offers in this moment by way of example, I want to give us each space to feel angst and frustration alongside the disciples who wake Jesus immediately and say, do you not care? Like, do you even see us here? I'll tell you, I have a situation in my life right now that's causing me to experience a real lack of peace in my life. I worry. I feel frustrated about it. I get anxious about it. I can feel that anxiety, anxiety sort of settling into my body when I think about this particular set of circumstances that feels so far beyond my control. And I won't go into the details, but you get the idea. It's too much water. And I felt that water, so to speak. I've leaned into God. I've called out to God. I've asked God for direction. And at least right now, I still feel as though I'm about, I'm standing about knee-deep. And I'd be willing to bet as I share this, at least half of you in this room can bring to mind your own set of circumstances which similarly land you in a place where you feel as though you're on the boat, there's too much water, it's unpredictable, and Jesus is sleeping. It's instability in your finances as our economy is weakening and the stock market is volatile. It's a deep soul unrest around disparity and injustice in our world like we recently saw in Memphis with the brutal beating of a young man by police. It's a pervasive shame that you've carried from your childhood. It's a mental health struggle that perhaps you've lived with for a long time but seems to have surfaced with a new intensity. It's a health diagnosis that is you facing the most difficult of all human realities, and you know that you are not in control. It's a marriage struggle. And so at least initially, when I read this story, my default is not to think, wow, Jesus, thank you for your peace you bring in the storm. We'll get there. But my first thought is this, Jesus, wake up. And so if you're here today and you're carrying that sentiment, I just want you to know it's valid. And we can learn from the disciples' utter honesty in this moment. So having named that reality and not losing sight of it, I want us to shift for a moment and focus on the experience of Jesus himself. Understandably, we look at this story through the lens of the disciples. But consider consider with me where Jesus is coming from. This particular story takes place very early in his ministry, and already he stirred quite a bit of controversy. In Mark chapter 3, just after healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, in verse 6, we read, The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. If you're reading this, You can go ahead and skip down a few verses. All of this is still in chapter 3 of Mark. In verse 20 to 22, it says Then he went home, and the crowds came together so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He's gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. So just to be clear of what's happening here, Jesus is being sought by the religious Jews and the political elite, both who want to destroy him. He's under tremendous pressure from the crowds, so much so that he does not have space to even eat. His own family, his own family thinks he has lost it and they're trying to rein him in and now the scribes and other sector of the religious elite are saying he must be the ruler of demons. That's the only way they can make sense of what Jesus is doing. Now I have to say, I've had some hard days, but this feels sort of next level, right? Everyone is sort of turning on him. And I name all that to say that Jesus is this very same person who sleeps peacefully on the boat and is is very intimate with pressure and he was feeling misunderstood with life circumstances that are impossibly difficult with what it's like to let down your family. He knows the experience of too much water, and yet he still sleeps. He still, still, Jesus knows a real and deep peace when everything appears to be crumbling. In this moment on the boat, Jesus is living the embodiment of Psalm 4.8, which reads, I will both lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make me lie down in safety. Notice there's an exclusivity here to the words offered by the psalmist. It's my connection, it's my proximity, it's my belongingness to God alone that becomes the source of my peace and safety. It's the very definition of that Iranian word, to be connected. And as we learn in this story, we begin to see that Jesus' own experience of peace confronts our present cultural notion that peace is dependent on our tranquility, on our circumstances. And this is actually good news for us, because we've all experienced enough of life to know that if my peace is dictated by my circumstances, I'll never get there. Such peace is a myth. Instead, the biblical notion of peace invites us toward this ever deeping intimacy, this connection with Christ, precisely as we find ourselves today, right here in this moment. Mark includes a great little phrase at the beginning of the story to describe Jesus. He writes, "This they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, just as he was." I love this little detail because it reminds us of the humanity of Christ. He was God to be sure, but we also see this beautiful, tender kind of humility in him in this moment. On this particular day for Jesus, just as he was, was probably exhausted, frustrated. I picture Jesus wondering about his own calling, feeling sadness even over his family's disappointment in him. Like, did I get this wrong? but he knew peace just as he was. And we find in that a really timely invitation not to pretend I'm somehow doing better than I am and call that peace, not to try and control everything and kind of white knuckle my way to peace, not to somehow distract my weight out of discomfort with mindless hours on social media or whatever it might be. Rather the invitation is this, To name with courageous honesty, this is where I am today, and I belong to God. So that's our first point. The source of peace is not found in our circumstances, but in our connection and our belonging to God, just as we are. And that all sounds good and well, but the valid follow-up question is, how do I practically experience this? How do I sort of live into that. And so our second point focuses on the pathway to peace. And we see this exemplified in Jesus' life, and in this story in particular. Notice in the beginning of verse 36, Mark tells us that they get into the boat and leave the crowd behind. Now if I put myself in the position of the crowd, I can imagine there were folks there who were not too pleased that Jesus sort of took off Nonetheless, Jesus retreats, he takes a step back from the noise and the expectation and he gets in the boat. If you read through the gospel, you'll notice this isn't the first time that Jesus has assumed this posture. In fact, twice in Mark chapter one, we see Jesus step away in a similar manner, once going into the wilderness and once moving into a secluded place just to pray. And this is the crux of our second point. The pathway to peace is centered on this word, retreat. Retreat. Now, some of you will know this concept of retreating. It has its origin in uh, military jargon. It's a word originally used to describe a withdrawal from battle when the troops were tired or their strategy wasn't working. And because of this, we often see this word as having negative connotations. But more often than not, strategic retreat is actually a positive maneuver. It allows troops to rest and to get a sort of panoramic view of the situation. It's an essential part of the fight. In the year 1520, a Spanish man named Ignatius of Loyola, who had a military background, took this concept of strategic retreat. And he actually applied it to the spiritual life, to a life of faith. Saint Ignatius looked at the life of Christ and rightfully saw a rhythm to his ways. It involved taking a step back for the purpose of reflection, prayer, rest, connection, leaving the crowd and climbing into the boat. So St. Ignatius, he developed a formal retreat of sorts. And during those retreats, people were invited invited to come away from their day-to-day life and examine where they were sensing both God's presence and God's absence. And after going through this exercise for many days they would reaffirm their connection and belonging to God in all of life so that upon returning to their normal reality they were keenly aware of their no- they were keenly aware of that belonging especially in those moments that would have formally compromised their peace It's funny this word retreat it seems to imply giving up in my mind it's sort of synonymous with surrender or waving the white flag But ironically, in the economy of God's kingdom, it's the pathway forward. It's how we move towards strength. See, the part of the story that rightfully gets a great deal of attention in the story of Jesus is the moment that Jesus stands up and calms the storm. Mark writes this, he says, And waking up, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Be silent, be still. Then the wind ceased and there was a dead calm. See, what part of retreat allows us to do is to not only identify with the truth that we belong to God, but to identify the power and the nature of who that God is. Remember that the sea in that day was the ultimate symbol of chaos and evil and death. And so when Jesus calms the, calms the sea, there's this foreshadowing of sorts at work here. The disciples get a sense of Jesus' power that will ultimately be fully and entirely displayed when Jesus absolutely conquers chaos and darkness and death on the cross. Now, stick with me. This is really important. This isn't a boat story. It's a resurrection story. And it communicates to us that when we step back from the demands of life, When we pause, when we retreat, we do not retreat in weakness, but into the ultimate resurrection storm-calming strength. And I make a practice, and as I make a practice of retreating into this God, I learn to live more consistently with an awareness of God's presence in all of my life and in all of my storms. About 20 years ago, I lost my job. I was laid off and it shook me. It really did. One, because I was surprised. I had no idea that it was coming and two, how were we going to pay our bills? How were we going to pay our mortgage? We live in California and I panicked and immediately called a realtor to get the ball rolling on selling our home and moving. I was also signed up to begin seminary and thought maybe this is a sign from God that seminary was not my calling. But luckily for me, I have a smart and cool wife who always helps me make the big decisions. And I have to say, Tammy is proof that patriarchy does not work because she is clearly the better decision maker. So I took a breath, started looking for a new job, and began seminary. And as it turned out, my first class in seminary was on prayer, which is a pretty good thing when you are worried and anxious, right? And my homework assignment was to pray or to meditate on Scripture or just to sit for one hour every day just listening. And over time, just pausing throughout my day to pray or read Scripture or listen became a source of retreat for me. It was a place of retreat. Now, to be clear, hear this. It wasn't a fix-it or a formula. But slowly, my soul began to settle into the truth that God holds and controls things that I do not. And this truth, it freed me to enter the world then, to go to a job interview with a greater sense of connectedness, knowing that God is with me so I don't have to worry I have nothing to fear because there's a peace that comes as I retreat into God just as I am and acknowledge God's character and power and my own limitation. So I have a real and practical question for all of us. Where are your spaces of retreat? Where are you taking a step back from the crowd in the noise, to experience a peace that we cannot manufacture, but only God can and does give. It could be as simple as going home tonight and going to bed early, allowing physical rest to reorient your perspective in needed ways. It might mean finding God in a sunset or walking the dish on the Stanford campus. It might mean surrounding yourself with friends who know you and truly love you just as you are. It might mean starting and ending your days this week with reflections on a piece of Scripture that talks about the connection we have to God, like Psalm 23 or Psalm 103 or Ephesians 3. And this leads us to our third and final point, which is the outcome of peace, the outcome of peace. If we were to focus exclusively on the source of peace and the pathway to peace, our definition of this word would be incomplete. See, the biblical understanding of peace never ends with an individual sort of internal feeling. It's not just so we can sit around in a circle and sing kumbaya, that's never the goal. Rather the fruit of my own sense of peace is that I navigate the world in a way that brings forth peace. There's a ripple effect that now flows from my life. We see this acutely in the life of Jesus who had moments of retreat but did not live a life of retreat. Instead Jesus would go away for times and his sense of calling and belonging was reinforced. And that enabled him to embody a peaceful presence as he lived out his calling. The pastor, Ruth Haley Barton, captures this dynamic so well. She writes, "...the purpose of a retreat is always twofold." to become more deeply grounded in God as the ultimate orienting reality of our lives, and to return to the life God has given us with renewed strength, vitality, and clarity about how we are called to be in God for the world. See, Jesus lived with a sense of clarity around his calling, which, interesting, allowed him both to experience peace and to be a source of peace, A person whose very presence moved people toward connection and wholeness. In this passage from Mark, Jesus has told his disciples they are going to the other side, which we talked about. This would have come as a great surprise to Jesus' followers because Galilee is largely a Jewish area. And now Jesus and his Jewish disciples are, are headed to Decapolis, which is a totally different place culturally. It's where the Gentiles and the Romans lived. It wasn't a familiar or a comfortable territory for the disciples. And yet, Jesus is unmoved in his commitment to go there. His calling is not just simply no peace, but to be peace, to embody connection where there's division. And so they go to the other side. When they arrive in Decapolis following the storm in chapter 5, Mark tells us that immediately they're faced with this jarring scene. I love the Bible. If we actually read it, there are things that should make us stop and just say, Wow, what on earth? And here we read about a man with an unclean spirit who is broken free from the shackles binding him, and he confronts Jesus, who has a conversation with the demons inside the man before casting them out of him and into a herd of 2,000 pigs. The pigs then run off a cliff and into the sea where, they're, where they drown. So much happening here. The point I want to make is this. Jesus lived with such clarity around his belongingness to God that he was able to move into situations, even chaotic ones, with a deep peace and grounded discernment. He knew when to speak, to confront, to call out, as we see in the story. And he knew when to stay, uh, stay silent, as we see in Luke chapter 23, when he's accused before Herod. He has every reason to defend himself and yet there's not a trace of defensiveness in him. Jesus loved people deeply but his life was not dictated by people's expectations of him. He didn't carry the weight burden of pride and ego which whispers there's always something to prove and never let you be at peace. He was always on the move but he was not restless. He was present to do what was immediately before him. And when the time comes for Jesus to go to the cross, he does so willingly. Because as Colossians 1 clarifies for us, Jesus' mission and purpose culminates when he makes peace, when he reconciles all things through the blood of the cross, as he brings together that which has been separated, us and God. Peace was not only something Jesus experienced, but something he embodied, something he offered, something he made a reality for others in the world. He moved into the gaps as a person of an Irenae connection. Tammy and I took two trips to Ethiopia with our kids when they were young, and it changed all of our lives. The people of Ethiopia are poor in wealth, but rich in love. We loved it there, and we loved their coffee. How could you not? When you meet a person in Ethiopia, you usually greet them with the word slim, which means peace. And this word slim is similar to the Greek word erene. We spent a lot of time with a pastor over there, Pastor Matthews, who showed us how his nonprofit, Hope Enterprises, was committed to building schools for the poorest kids whose families lived on $2 a day. And they had a feeding kitchen in Otis, Ethiopia's largest city. They really do great work. As we had our last meal with Pastor Matthews, we thanked him for all they did to help others and how it had inspired us. And Pastor Matthews turned and said to me, Tom, we are just making connections as God puts people before us. What a beautiful way to live! It's the way Jesus lived, it's the way of the peacemaker. It's the way we as the church are called to live, just making connections as God puts people before us. And you know, maybe you do work that connects people with health care. Maybe you're connecting your community to food. Maybe you're connecting your neighbor who lives alone to community. Maybe you're connecting kids to the truth of God's unconditional love through the way you parent. Maybe you're connecting your friends at school to the reality of a loving God just through how you are their friend. This is the outcome of peace. We just make connections as God puts people before us. You can come on now. I grew up in a church where we would have a moment in the service where we would pass the peace. And I know some of you will remember this. Perhaps you still do. Where the pastor would say, may the peace of Christ be with you and the people would respond and also with you. And then the pastor would say, now let us share Christ's peace with one another. What a beautiful thing to do. In a way, this simple call and response really sums up the entire sermon today. Friends, wherever you are, however you walked in these doors, whatever storms you may be living through in this moment, may the peace of Christ be with you because Christ is with you right now, not because it's easy, but because God is here. And may you retreat into the knowledge that just as you are, you are connected to that God in Christ. And then don't stop there. This is the fun part. But now let us share the peace of Christ with one another with Palo Alto, with the Bay Area, and with this world as we move as a church making connections as God puts people before us. We're going to shift now to a time of communion which provides a beautiful opportunity for all of us to slow down and connect with God just as you are. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread Blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Prince's table is open and everybody is welcome.